Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, when Cosmo is away, I get to play, which means I'm your host of 321Go. Then we have an interview with Steve Boskansky, president of the Mass Beverage Association. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking Mother's Day. First up, 321Go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 3 2 on go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. It's still Cayenne, and I'm your host this week, filling in for Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 3 2 on go Uber and Lyft drivers are going on strike. We'll discuss what that means for the rideshare economy and its customers. And it just might be time to put down your cell phones in Massachusetts, at least when driving, that is. Word from Beacon Hill is that the hands-free bill will be taken up soon. So what does that mean for cell phone users, as in everyone everywhere? And finally, we're talking about a book currently being discussed in our office, The Technology Fallacy, and why living and working in the digital age might not mean exactly what we think it does. Joining me here on 321Go is Hugh Drummond. Hello. (laughs) The official behind-the-scenes coordinator of OA On Air. Welcome, Hugh. Hey, it's great to be here, Cayenne. Well, thanks for filling in for me as I fill in for Cosmo this week. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm, I am in Cosmo's seat. I've got Cosmo's script. So we are going to take the next step and say, okay, then let's get to it. All right. So first up, Uber and Lyft drivers have launched a strike to protest pay and job security, not just in Boston, but in cities all around the country. But that's, I mean, that's a big, that's a big uh-oh for a lot of people. The thing that I think is interesting is that uh, people may not realize, but drivers, Uber drivers are not employees. Uh, Uber sees them as independent contractors. Because of that, they don't qualify for the same typical benefits that you see. And protections. And protections, rather, that uh, that uh, traditional employees um, have access to. Well, and one of the interesting things um, in reading the Globe article on this was that a few years ago, drivers earned 80% of their fare. um, And then that recently changed, and now it's about 70 cents a mile. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's gone down in addition to, you know, they put a lot of wear and tear on their vehicles in terms of mileage, oil changes, gas. Um, It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, what you're talking about is it, they Uber recently decoupled driver pay from the fare. And yep. um, they did that because driver costs are the biggest costs the company can control. Mm-hmm. And the company is going public. They're about to make a lot of money. And you know what happens when a, they go public? Wall Street then starts determining what kind of uh, uh, expectations they yeah. they want from these companies in terms of their economic performance. That's a good point. So do you think this is the end? Are we going to see more changes from Uber and Lyft after this this strike is over? I would imagine so. I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, this is clearly a, uh, it's a great moment for a company, it, just any company, to, to reach a point where they have an opportunity to go public. You know, mm-hmm. this, this was an idea, a concept several years ago. It completely disrupted the uh, the the ride ride market 
And, um, you know, I love access to, to my ride sharing uh, apps. And, I mean, it changes uh, the way people travel. Yeah. It, it's, you know, people aren't calling cabs as often, um, whether it's price or availability. Um, also not utilizing public transportation quite as often, mm-hmm. which comes with its own unique set of problems. But I take the train every day, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Commuter rail passenger over here. Um, but it's also something that people have turned to when public transportation perhaps isn't as reliable as it needs to be. That's um, right. You know, there are people in this office that if the T is exceptionally slow, they they take a ride share here uh, yeah. just to get to work because it's faster. Yeah. Um, and not always that pricey, depending on the time of day, too. So they're striking in cities throughout the, the country. Um, and a big question is what comes with the strike and, and how long does it last? And, you know, the to your point, they're not employees. So other people could just swoop in and fill those spots and maybe no disruption is felt. Right. Well, I, I mean, I it, clearly there, there, there's some disruption. But, um, you know, in the end, another disruptive technology company might might uh, arise from, from yeah. this chaos. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I'm a big believer in making sure workers have a livable wage and, and access to, to certain benefits. So... Uh, I give him credit for taking a stand. Yeah. Thanks, you. All right. So pretty soon, Massachusetts drivers, depending on a vote and how things go on Beacon Hill, might have to put down their phones when driving. Now, there's already a no texting bill for anyone that doesn't already know you should not be texting while driving. That means not using your map apps or reading email or anything along those lines. Uh, That was put in place in, I believe it was 2010. But now they're saying, let's go one step further and say, you can't hold your phone at all, which means you got to have a Bluetooth device or some sort of hands-free, you know, situation in your car, whatever it is. If you're going to be driving on the road, I'm all for it. I, I mean, I have to say, I'm all for it. I also am horrible at using these hand-free devices. Mm-hmm. The, the talk-to-text features are um, really challenging. Even that, you have to hold your phone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of. Um, it, you know, one thing that's interesting is uh, some of the uh, news coverage on this refers to a Harris poll that uh, came out. I think it was in in conjunction with Volvo. So, uh, you know, there's some interest there. But the Harris poll actually uh, talks about the fact that distracted driving is the number one danger that uh, drivers, adult drivers, uh, say um, uh, they fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the thing that I found interesting, but yet, when I think about it, it's, it's all too common is that um, the uh, parents with kids under 18 are the number one culprits of uh, using their phone while driving. And more importantly, the uh, majority of the time they do it, the kids are with them in the car. Yes. I know Scary. personally, my son, who is five, will tell me, like, if I, even if I'm like at a light, I'll stop and I'll look at my phone. He's like, Mom put down your phone. I, I'm at a light. I should be okay. Probably still shouldn't do it. Um, but he calls me out on it all the time. Now, yeah. you have more than one child under the age of yeah. 18. So are you doing it three times as often? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, w- well, my kids also uh, uh, are very um, watchful, mindful yep. of uh, the driver and, and what 
either my wife or I are doing as drivers. Uh, I have a uh, one of my children is a driver, yes. and she knows uh, the law is that she cannot touch her device. Yep. Um, is she extra hard on you? Uh, I'm extra hard on her, and she's extra hard on me, and that's okay. Good. Yes, safety first. That's right. Um, so that there are a mul- there are so many options to not actually use your phone. Most phones do have uh, most cars now have Bluetooth, uh, which means you sync your phone yeah. to your car, and you can talk to your car on speakerphone through the speakers of your car for anyone that doesn't know. Um, and then, you know, the good old fashioned one one earpiece, go retro if that's that's your thing. But it looks to be that this might be reality in Massachusetts soon. Yeah, and just pull over if you really need to uh, make that call or send that text. Yes, thanks. All right. And last up, we have The Technology Fallacy, which is a book that you've been talking about a lot mm-hmm. um, around the office and has sparked some interesting conversations. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Because I, I, full disclosure, have not read it, only know what you have told me. Which it's is, on my desk. <laughs> it is on, it's on your desk. It's always on your desk um, because you've been kind of getting through it. But it's really interesting. It's not about robots. It's not. It's none no. of that. It's really it's about how... People people and how we interact with yeah. the world in 2019. So, you know, we're on a podcast and I first heard about the book on a another podcast and, and I'm a big podcast person in the morning and, and my commutes and so forth. So the book is called The Technology Fallacy. It's by Gerald Kane, who's a Boston College uh, professor, and Ann Phillips uh, from Deloitte. Um, and there's a lot of research behind it. But it basically talks about the fact that um, it, it's less about technology and it's more about people and how organizations are addressing and embracing technology and disruption and maturing through digital disruption through uh, by changing how they work with people, how they organize, how they structure themselves, and so forth. The thing that I think is interesting, they frame it with a, a, a kind of a picture of the Wizard of Oz. If you remember the Wizard of Oz, okay. Dorothy, I'm with you. In, in a cyclone in the beginning, a tornado comes and, and whips her out of Kansas and, and she lands in Oz. And the story though is not really about the storm, the storm that brought her there. It's The story is about her journey through Oz and, and how she has to learn to find her way in a new mm-hmm. world and how to navigate. And, you know, in the book, the actual Wizard of Oz book by Frank Baum, Dorothy stays in Oz. She can't get back. And so if you think about technology in our digital world, you can't go back. Uh, We are in a new world. And so that's the framing that that they start with. And I found it really interesting because if you keep that in mind as you go through each chapter, and I'm not done with the book yet, but as, as you go through each chapter, it really helps to um, you know make it easy to understand and and so forth. So, is it fair to say that it's not so? I think the way that you've really talked about it is that it's not so much about the technology, but how people deal with the technology, yeah. right? And what that means if you don't understand 
the technology and what that means on the effect it's having on your employees and your business and really just life and how you operate. Yeah, it's um, they, they talk about several aspects of of business operations. One of which is leadership, right? So leadership uh, leadership is different from managing, mm-hmm. and a leader needs to have vision. A leader needs to be change oriented. A leader needs to be forward looking. And in a digital world, most importantly, leaders need to be digitally literate. A CEO doesn't need, necessarily need how to co- need to know how to code or need even to know how to tweet, mm-hmm. um, but they need to know what those platforms bring to the table, and what, and they need to know how they have to change their company to allow it to take advantage of all those platforms. You know, one one thing is interesting is um, the things. Part of being digitally illiterate is is knowing that technology can be used in many different ways. Twitter, for instance, a website or social pages in general, companies have them. Mm-hmm. But what their original purpose was probably more about branding, a brand presence in a digital space. Yep. It is so much more than that now. Airlines use them for customer service. Companies use them for transactions. They, there's a lot of interaction with, with consumers. It's, it's a much more mature uh, embracing of those platforms. And that's, that's part of that mindset. So the technology fallacy, not finished yet, but you'll have to maybe come back and update us when you do. Yeah, or maybe we can uh, grab one of these authors one time and That'd be get great. them on. Yeah. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Kyan Isaacson. Up next, an interview with Steve Buskansky, president of the Mass Beverage Association. All right, this is Cosmo Macero with OA On Air. I'm joined by Steve Boskansky, the president of the Massachusetts Beverage Association. Steve, it's great to have you on OA On Air. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Cosmo. Excellent. So a uh, couple different things um, in the mix right now for uh, beverage companies in Massachusetts. First, though, can you just talk briefly about what makes up your association, your coalition, the group of companies uh, has a tremendous impact on the Massachusetts economy uh, as an industry in terms of jobs and impact and all kinds of things. Thanks. That's really laying a good foundation for us. Uh, The Mass Beverage Association represents uh, the Commonwealth's manufacturers and distributors of non-alcoholic beverages uh, from national brands to regional family-owned labels. uh, And the industry employs over 5,000 people here in Massachusetts. Uh, they pay about $475 million in salary annually. Uh, and, and so we're in virtually every community in Massachusetts through the local partnerships, convenience stores, restaurants, mom-and-pop operations. Uh, we have partners literally from uh, the Berkshires to Providence now. Yep. You, you mentioned partners, and I, and I know that from doing some work with the association and its members, that um, all types of partnerships in the ways that a beverage company interacts, whether it's with restaurants, whether it's with convenience stores, um, and, and, and I know the association takes those partnerships really seriously uh, and, and is good at working as part of a coalition. 
you know, for an industry at, in, in which packaging and, 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 and bottling glass, plastic, what have you, is important, um, the association and its members are real strong partners and, and really one of the most important um, uh, supporters, advocates, and, and really f- corporate figures in promoting um, uh, uh, strong recycling programs here in Massachusetts. Am I right? Absolutely. Um, and, and just from a sort of a, a local standpoint, we have Polar Beverages in Worcester, Massachusetts, a family-owned business. It's been there for over 100 years. Great family. Uh, and, and they do a tremendous amount of work in their community and beyond. But when you're talking about recycling, in 2012, the Mass Beverage Association created what we call the Massachusetts Recycling Challenge. And that was a challenge, that was a program designed to help cities and towns develop better infrastructure for handling recycling, especially in public spaces. So for example, we've put some public space recycling bins at ball fields in Lowell, along the trolley stops in Quincy, at the new city square development in the city of Worcester, and along the red line, starting at Alewife, all the way down to Kendall Square. So we've had a lot of fun doing that, and we've had a great impact. Yeah, I, I recall um, uh, launching the partnership with the MBTA on that, which has been very successful. Um, and and, and it's, it, it really is important to give cities and towns where they needed uh, the support for this recycling infrastructure because depending on what municipality you might live in, you're going to have a different experience and a different level of service. So trying to have a positive impact uh, to make it easier is, is, is really important. That's correct. The municipalities really are on the front line of this challenge of handling recyclables. Uh, and if you adhere to some of the best practices, you can have dramatic and great improvements. Uh, just like to give a little plug for the Massachusetts DEP. They've got a couple great programs. They've got some grant programs available. Uh, and they've got this fantastic program called the Recycling IQ Kit, which yep. can help the cities and towns step by step achieve great results in recycling. Excellent. We're talking to Steve Boskansky from the Massachusetts Beverage Association. Steve, uh, there is an ongoing nationwide initiative to address the uh, obesity epidemic. Um, I have found that it is mirrored in other countries, Australia, which I think people often associate with you know, outdoorsy, outdoorsy, strong kind of population uh, of healthy people having its own significant obesity epidemic. I see, I see other countries sort of mirroring what's ha- what the experience is here in the U.S. But bottom line is, uh, uh, America's beverage companies are playing an important role in understanding that regulating sugar intake is an important part of, uh, of a healthy lifestyle, and they're playing a really positive role in that, right, in, in terms of offering different options, reducing, uh, offering different serving sizes. The fact that I think 50% of all products sold by this industry are, are zero calorie. Um, uh, it's been some years now since uh, sugar-sweetened beverages were removed from most school districts, for instance. A lot of different things. The American Beverage Association, which is sort of the umbrella that mass beverage companies are part of, uh, has a whole initiative of balanced calories and balanced lifestyles. So uh, I-, I think it's fair to say that the industry is playing an important role in this in addressing this epidemic. Absolutely. I think if you look at the, what the beverage industry has done over the last 10 years, it's far more than any any other industry has done to promote awareness, to promote healthy lifestyles, and educate consumers so they can make choices on their own. Uh, and that's what we like. It's all about choices, uh, but it's about being educated. So when you look at a uh, a container of your favorite 
refreshment drink, you'll see the calorie count right on the front. When you go to a vending machine, you'll see the calorie counts on the machine. Uh, so it's promoting awareness, making sure people are aware of what they're doing. And that's really the basis of the program is make sure people know what they're putting in their bodies and then make sure they understand that there's a component that goes with nutrition and physical fitness uh, and they can handle that on their own. All right. Makes perfect sense. One last thing we have seen in years past, and again, just this week, some measures uh, emerging on Beacon Hill, a House bill and a Senate bill, addressing the idea of placing some new tax or taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, A concept that exists that there is some correlation between taxing a product or taxing sugar-sweetened beverages and, and having a positive impact on the obesity epidemic. It's a concept, however, that we see just doesn't work. And, 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 and where it has been tried, it has not been successful because there's no correlation between higher taxes and better health. Right? Absolutely. That, you're 100% correct. Um, what we see there is that the, the, um, the taxes... There is no correlation. There's no correlation between the taxes. And, 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 it, and it, imp- it impacts small business. It impacts not just the industry, but it impacts people who are living on the margins, who are in, 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 in certain areas that are underserved um, because, because the tax is going to impact them significantly. Um, it impacts stores that are on the border with other states because once you decide, uh, I'm not doing that, I'm not paying that extra money for that product, and you go somewhere else, you take your whole grocery list with you. You don't. You don't start sourcing one uh, one thing in your grocery bag at five different stores. Absolutely correct. And no state has a tax like this, so it's very we're concerned. Anytime you implement a new tax like this, it's going to have an impact on the business. And again, we have all these different uh, partnerships across the Commonwealth, and that's going to trickle down to impact every one of those businesses, the convenience stores, the mom and pop restaurants, et cetera. So that gives us grave concern. We know people shop in New Hampshire a lot already just on the increased cost of the bottle deposit. Sure. Uh, So if you throw a tax on top of that, you can really kiss those retailers up along that border goodbye. Yeah, that's that's it's really difficult. All right, Steve Boskansky, the Mass Beverage Association. Hey, thanks for joining us. Important stuff, uh, and we'll be tracking these things uh, as, the, as the rest of the year progresses. Thanks for having me, Cosmo. It's been fun. All right, take care. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Tom. Is this our 50th show together? Not yet. Really? We're getting close. Are we? Okay. I think we're three episodes away. Is that four oh, episodes away? Really? From 50. Okay. I knew it was getting close. Time flies when you're having fun, Tom. Two minutes with Tom, right? <laughs> four and a half. O-A on air. Okay. So this weekend is Mother's Day. And Does anybody listen to this thing, by the way? Yes. This, this two-minute thing, this drill that you, you and I, between you, you and me? You are the draw. Oh, okay. All right. Right answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, this weekend is Mother's Day. It sure and is. And obviously people know a lot about your father. You talk a lot about your father. We don't hear as much about your mom. And I thought it would be a nice opportunity to talk about what I'm sh- who I am sure has to be a pretty amazing woman. You know, it, what's an amazing thing about that is that, you know, in, in, in our house, um, everybody hears about, in, in the public, everybody hears about the men and the O'Neill men as opposed to the O'Neill women. And the real strength in the house has always been the O'Neill women. Um, Millie, 
Mildred Ann Miller O'Neill. Um, just a, a great woman. She um, she brings back very fond memories. I'll, I'll tell you, um, and, and, a, and a wonderful mother. And she allowed her children uh, not only to receive the best education they possibly could, when in effect she was a high school graduate only, never went to college, um, but she lived through the eyes, ears, and senses of her five children. Um, and, and she did it with, with a lot of love. So if my sister took a trip to Europe, my mother wanted to know all about it when she came home. She wanted to live every moment. She wanted to hear and see uh, stories and pictures of what it looked like, what it was about, how the people were, what was the culture like, the language, how expensive were the meals, how was the food. <laughs> um, and, and she did that with each and every one of us. And in fact, she kind of drove us to have these experiences which she never had. And in fact, it, it, it helped her grow. And in a very odd way, it helped my dad grow because he didn't travel as much as his five children had collectively either. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was that it was that sense of my dad not being there because he was in Washington. And during our early years as kids, we were living in Cambridge. You know, she was the mother and the father. Um, to Takes all a five special kids. woman to do that. Takes quite a woman <laughs> to do it, and. Um, you know, she had not only the, the love, but the, but the appreciation and respect of all five of her kids and the love and the respect of her husband because of it. Um, so she was, she was really something. And there were many, many high points uh, during the course of our formative years growing up and even as adults, you know, sharing wonderful experiences with my mother. Most, for the most part, uh, in, in Boston early on, but, but for the most part in the later years in Washington, where she went down with my dad after all the kids had left the house, and she lived with him in Washington, and she really shared some just wonderful experiences uh, that she had because she was married to Tip O'Neill. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. You're very welcome. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also find us on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.